Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. Thank you guys for tuning in as always. The subject of today's conversation is the situation in Venezuela. Many, many, many of you have tweeted at me, who've posted on our Facebook page and asked me to talk to an expert about what's going on down in Venezuela and their very rapid descent into a dictatorship and a humanitarian catastrophe. I spoke with Hannah Dreyer, who until June was the AP's correspondent in Caracas. She has fascinating insight. She has lived this experience for the last three years of her life, and I really appreciate her coming on the show. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. My guest today is Hannah Dreyer. She is a reporter at ProPublica. She spent three years in Venezuela as a correspondent for the Associated Press starting in 2014 and was actually the last American correspondent to get a permanent work visa in Venezuela. Hannah, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about a problem that I think is it's hard to find information about sometimes in the press. I'm really glad to be here. I was hoping we could start with the humanitarian situation because I think... You hear about the political implications, but the human element of this sometimes gets left out. So I want to do that first. I've heard you talk about seeing people digging through the trash for food the minute it's put out on the street. I've read about hospitals going hours without power and water and patients being asked to bring their own gloves and medical equipment if they want to be treated. Can you help people understand just how dire the situation is? Yeah, I mean, for me, that was also pretty shocking. Like, I went down there in 2014 to cover what looked like a complicated and dramatic political story. And then it just really quickly became a humanitarian catastrophe. And that became the story. So what you say about hospitals is exactly right. At this point, hospitals, public hospitals are basically just buildings with nothing in them. So if you need medical attention, you go in there and the doctor will tell you everything you need to bring in, like gauze, alcohol swabs, even sheets and soap, definitely gloves, any medicine, even down to syringes and those plastic pouches for IV drips. And they won't do anything until you've brought all of that to them. So some people just wait and wait to get surgery because they have to get some key last thing, like the surgical gown for, for the doctor to wear. So I asked listeners of Pod Save the World on our Facebook page what questions they wanted me to ask you. And over and over again, I got some version of what can we do to help people that are suffering? Are there nonprofits or NGOs that people could support if they wanted to help the people you were talking about earlier? I mean, that's a question that I got asked a lot. For me, it's one of the most heartbreaking elements of the situation. It's not easy at all to get aid into Venezuela. The government is actually banning aid. So not just, you know, readers and people living in places like the U.S., but governments and the U.N. and these international aid groups have offered to send in huge shipments. The government's position is that there's no crisis and they don't need anybody's help. So there are actually warehouses full of medicine and food and basic supplies in other countries like the U.S. and Canada and Chile, and that stuff can't get into the country. God, it's just Um, so unbelievable that the government would actively prevent people, its own citizens, from getting help. Yeah, I mean, as a reporter, it 
is frustrating because I think it's great that people want to help in this non-political, just like human to human way, but there aren't really organizations that I can recommend. Yeah. You got down there when you were, I think you said 27, you were choosing between going to Mexico or going to Venezuela and it turned into this story. I mean, what was it like to be covering this enormous crisis at such a young age? And and how do you separate the reporting from like just empathy for other human beings that are suffering? Or do you need to? I mean, it's very hard to separate those things. I tried to be as objective as I could just because it's such a polarized place. Now it's less polarized. Now most people are just against the Maduro administration. But Mm -hmm. back in 2014, half the country really did support Maduro. They just voted him in. And half the country thought that the socialist revolution was terrible. And there wasn't a lot of middle ground. So as a reporter, it was very important to try to just tell you know, the facts as I saw them and not take a point of view, especially because there isn't a lot of objective local reporting right now. And it was strange being there at 27. I hadn't ever reported abroad. And I was, yeah, like you said, looking at Mexico, which seemed like maybe a fun place to live. And then Venezuela seemed like it might be about to tip into a really dramatic story. And I did not understand how dramatic it was going to get, or I might never have gone. And I'm sure AP never would have agreed to send me. But (laughs) I got down there, and all of my friends were kind of living the crisis. You know, there were young professionals, people who were just hitting their stride. And when I got down there, my friends were all pretty excited about what they were doing. They were working in the arts, or they were working in publishing or other professional tracks. And everybody's lives were kind of getting more solid the way they do around that age. Like people were getting their own apartments and um, were buying cars. And it kind of felt like we were all on the same page, just like making our way. And then life got so much harder for my friends almost immediately. It was like six months after I got down there, everybody's lives seemed to suddenly take a turn. And now most of those people have left. I have very few friends who are still living in, in Venezuela. Well, I'm sure the AP was very glad they sent you down there. So maybe we could step back a bit and sort of figure out how we got here. Not long ago, Venezuela was one of the richest countries per capita in South America. It has one of the world's largest, if not the world's largest, oil reserves. How did we get here? Can you talk a little bit about the history and how you think factors like the declining price of oil, the mismanagement of currency, and general just corruption and competence rank in all of this? Yeah, that's such an important thing to talk about. And I think that gets missed a lot because the crisis now is so dramatic. Uh, people just focus on that. But the truth is Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world and was at one point one of the richest countries in the world. It was definitely the richest country in Latin America for a very long time. And in Latin America, people think of Venezuelans as kind of like spoiled rich kids. It's a country that has the most beauty queens of any country in the world. They have very fine tastes. There are still these elegant restaurants. People get plastic surgery and people go from other countries to get plastic surgery in Venezuela. So it's not like a country that never developed. It was a swanky country in a lot of ways. What most economists will tell you is that starting with the revolution launched by Hugo Chavez, the government started making economic mistakes, basically. 
And by the time I got down there in 2014, there were a lot of economic distortions and currency and price distortions. A lot of companies had been nationalized and weren't working well. And all of that was kind of covered up because the price of oil was surging and Venezuela gets almost all of its money from oil. So it's like you couldn't see how bad things were going. But then at the end of 2014, there was this huge oil crash and the price of oil dropped from $100 a barrel down to maybe 30 And suddenly you could see that things were falling apart and the economy just kind of continued to spiral downward from there and hasn't recovered. And you were getting paid in dollars, right? And I, I think I heard you say you were buying like increasingly large bags to be able to carry around the wads of cash that you needed once you converted the currency. I mean, it sounds like some shocking levels of inflation. Yeah. I mean, I was getting paid in dollars and it was very strange because because of the currency implosion, I was kind of getting richer as everybody else got poorer. When I got down there, it was kind of a cheap country. But by the time I left, it was like things were almost free. So when I first moved there, I was paying $1,000 a month to rent a pretty nice apartment. And by the time I left, my rent was $50 for the same apartment just because of the currency distortions. And everything was like that. (laughs) Wow. Can you talk a little bit about, so like going forward a tiny bit, the President Maduro has taken a bunch of steps recently that have led neighbors like Colombia and Brazil to say that Venezuela is now a dictatorship. Is it normal to throw out the legislature and create a new one or to pull TV stations off the air? I mean, can you talk about some of the stuff that's going on? Yeah. So people used to say that Venezuela was a managed democracy. It was never a perfect democracy, but at least there were free elections and different branches of power. And it was kind of working okay. Like there were elections from time to time and the Chavista government would do these big spending campaigns. And the criticism was that they would spend government funds to buy people refrigerators or televisions right before the elections. But at least the election itself, everybody pretty much agreed was a a fair election, you know, at the polling places. But around 2015, people started to turn against Maduro and against Chavismo. And for the first time in really two decades, they didn't have popular support. And so they started taking these increasingly dramatic steps. And the first thing they did was they lost the election for Congress For the first time in 15 years, the opposition won Congress and they accepted the results, but then abolished Congress. So that (laughs) that wasn't normal. They nullified Congress and it became kind of the symbolic body that could still meet, but couldn't really implement laws. Sounds like our Congress in a a strange way. I mean, yeah. (laughs) In effect, effect, maybe kind of similar. Joking listeners, but kind of. And... Then a lot of independent media outlets started to get shut down. There's now only really one independent newspaper um, that's not owned by the government or sympathetic toward the government. Journalists started to get beat up and opposition leaders were arrested. They arrested the mayor of Caracas, which is, you know, it's like arresting de Blasio. They arrested the mayor of the largest city on kind of a pretext. They said that he'd been plotting a coup. And then just recently, the government staged this election to write a new constitution. And what they were supposed to do is ask the people if they wanted a new constitution. 
But instead, they they just decided we're getting a new constitution and they offered voters a chance to decide who would write that constitution. But voters could only pick from a slate of pro-government candidates. So, it, you know, Maduro's wife was a candidate. His son was a candidate. It seemed pretty clear what was going to happen. And so the opposition boycotted that election. This is just last month. And um, the U.S. and other countries made some pretty strong statements saying, don't hold this election. Don't try to rewrite the Constitution. This is going to be a step over that line that you've been walking right up to. And the government did hold the election. And um, now the neighboring countries, the U.S., and probably most independent observers are saying that the government's crossed over from being a democracy to a dictatorship. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com slash store to shop While Hugo Chavez was like a gigantic pain in the ass, he was undeniably charismatic. He was able to lead the country and build support among working class people. 
I'm told by people who have worked with Maduro that he's just not that bright. His propaganda efforts are laughably bad in comparison. Do you think Maduro took these steps because the economic mismanagement and the price of oil dropping left him with no choice? Or is he just sort of bumbling along and trying to figure this out? I mean, I don't think anybody envies Maduro at this point. Even in Venezuela, people kind of talk about him in a pitying way sometimes. It would have been very hard to replace Chavez no matter what. Chavez, love him or hate him, was, like you say, incredibly charismatic and really a once-in-a-lifetime leader who was a champion of the poor in a rich country that had never had somebody come in and go into the slums and say that poor people should also have a seat at the table. So that was hugely important. And then Maduro came in and his only real claim to legitimacy was that Chavez had said that he should be the next president. And what I've heard analysts say is that Maduro is less free than Chavez would have been to make economic changes. Because Chavez was fairly flexible. um, And if something wasn't working, he would sometimes double back on what he had said he would do. He would change his mind. He would sometimes make policy adjustments like he would allow devaluations to happen. In some ways, he reminds me of Trump. Like he would say that he was definitely going to do one thing, but if it wasn't working, he would go and do another thing and not really seem to care. Yeah. Um, Maduro is not like that. Maduro has only ever pursued one policy, basically. Like he's only ever stuck to the policies of Chavez and doubled down on them, even when it just seems like there is no way they are working and everybody thinks that he's not going to continue down that path. He'll just continue and kind of blow everyone's mind again and again. Can you sort of like define what do the Chavistas stand for and believe in? Like what is their party versus the opposition? I don't even know that I have a great handle on that. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I think sometimes gets lost in the U.S. is the country is not as polarized as it used to be. So Sometimes people say things to me like, well, half the country supports Chavez and the other half doesn't. And that's not true anymore. In polls, 80% of people say that they don't want Maduro to stay in as president. And the government employs about 20% of people. So it seems like people work for the government or they want a different government. But Chavismo's main tenant was really like social justice and social inclusion and anti-capitalism, anti-imperialism. Chavez's big project was to unite third world countries to be stronger and be able to go up against the U.S. and other superpowers. And while the economy was working, that also was kind of working. So Chavez gave away oil to regional neighbors like Cuba and other Caribbean countries and other Latin American countries. And um, he accepted payment in services or deferred loans. And, you know, he famously basically called George Bush the devil. He stood (laughs) up after him at the U.N. and said, oh, it smells like sulfur here. So he was like a populist um, leftist. And what's really striking to me is that all the social gains that he was able to make have at this point been erased in Venezuela. So for a while, there was less poverty in Venezuela under Chavez. There was more education, better health care. He started putting Cuban doctors in the slums to run free clinics. And the poor loved him for that. And a lot of people respected that. But at this point, you know, nobody can get health care in Venezuela. 
and poverty is even worse than what it used to be. Plus, there's now real hunger. So I think even people who supported him at one point now kind of think that that project has failed and want something new. Can I ask you about the opposition for a minute? I mean, so we've seen protesters out on the street for months. More than 100 protesters have died. You talked about one opposition leader who was imprisoned for a long time. There was another one named Leopoldo Lopez, who actually went to the same college as I went to, who was imprisoned for years and was let out and taken back and let out again. One thing I heard you say that is that despite all this suffering and the death and people being imprisoned, that a lot of opposition members feel like they've gained nothing. What's the state of the opposition? Is there hope for them or is this just rigged in Maduro's favor? I mean, it's interesting that you say Leopoldo Lopez, this opposition leader, went to the same college he went to. The opposition has struggled in Venezuela for years because it's seen as part of the elite. And the main leaders are kind of these rich guys who went to school abroad, speak English, and are seen in the slums as part of the oligarchy that never wanted poor people to be included. And they've gotten much better on that front in recent years, but it's kind of a stigma that I think has has hindered them for a long time. And right now, people are very demoralized. They went to the streets as hard as they could. The whole capital city has been shut down for months and months, and people have been going out every day and risking their lives and staying out for, you know, 12 hours in the tropical heat, skipping school, skipping work, and things have only gotten more repressive. So I think a lot of protesters believed that if they kept going out there, this effort to rewrite the Constitution would have to fail, and the international community would have to step in, or at least give aid. And instead, the opposite happened. So it's a tough situation. The other thing is it's not clear what the opposition stands for. It's this very big coalition and you have right-wingers all the way to socialists, democratic socialists, all in the same coalition. So it's hard for them to put forward any kind of concrete plan beyond we don't want Maduro anymore. And people are worried about the violence in the street. Like you say, 100 people have been killed I mean, Caracas is very violent. A hundred people are killed just like in the normal course of things every day in Venezuela. But I have friends who are trying to tell their boyfriends that they can't go to the protests anymore. I have one friend who's lying to his girlfriend. Her, his girlfriend at one point thought he was having an affair because he was just being really sketchy about where he was going. But where he was going was to put on a mask and throw Molotov cocktails at the National Guard. People don't want their like sons and daughters and friends to be the next person to die for what is increasingly looking like a lost cause. Do you think that the treatment of the opposition imprisoning leaders like Leopoldo or anybody else, could that help them get the bona fides they need to actually lead? Or is this just like, is it a class issue? Yeah, the conventional wisdom in Venezuela is that the next president will be somebody who's been in jail. And it's almost like a contest among the opposition leaders when you talk to them. Like, always make sure to bring up that time that they were in jail, just like Leopoldo right. 10 years ago. Right. Um, they'll say, you know, it was five months and four days, and they really want you to get those four days in there. 
because it's almost like a it's like a litmus test for commitment. I mean, Hugo Chavez himself was in prison for years because he led a failed coup against the former government. And it was when he was in prison that he really became a national celebrity. And then when he got out, he was elected. So I think it's not nothing that these people are in prison. Other leaders have fled. All of the political prisoners right now could have fled if they wanted to. Um, You know, they have the money to do it and they have the support abroad. But it still hasn't been enough. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. So I was hoping we could talk a bit about what the U.S. should do, because that's a question I got a lot from Pod Save the World listeners on Facebook. Because, you know, for many years, Hugo Chavez basically defined himself and, and derives a lot of his power from trolling the U.S. He said, uh, as you noted earlier at the podium at the U.N., that it smelled like sulfur after Bush spoke. He used our Cuba policy as a wedge to create conflict between the U.S. and other countries in Latin America. So we don't want to become the story, but we want to do something. President Trump has issued some targeted sanctions that seem mostly symbolic. He also floated the idea of broader oil sanctions, which would be enormously impactful. He floated the idea of military intervention, which is batshit crazy. Personally, I appreciate the fact that he and Vice President Pence have been talking about Venezuela. They met with Leopoldo Lopez's wife, Lillian. But what's your take on how the U.S. should approach this challenge? 
I mean, this is where I'm glad that I'm a journalist and not a policymaker because I <laughs> yeah. have no idea. It seems incredibly hard. And the sanctions that have been issued, like you say, are symbolic and they're being used in Venezuela as a symbol, but as a symbol of U.S. aggression and meddling. And that's kind of the only card Maduro has left. That's the one thing from Chavez's playbook that he really does seem to enjoy playing and he plays it well. This accusation that the U.S. has been seeking to destroy his government and is still an imperialist power and basically wants to use its clout to decide who gets to rule Venezuela. So the U.S. sanctioned Venezuela once under Obama and Maduro seemed to love it. His approval ratings got a big bounce and he talked about it every day for weeks and weeks. And then Obama seemed to shy away from that. Trump came in and he's issued a couple rounds of sanctions, including on Maduro himself. And it sounds like they might issue more. But it's hard to see how those have anything more than a symbolic impact and hard to see how they don't help Maduro. I heard a lot of groans from people when Trump kind of floated the idea of military intervention in Venezuela, because that's the number one thing Maduro is constantly accusing the U.S. of trying to do. Right. It's so stupid. And we're not going to do that. Under what legal framework or, you know, with what backing would there be any sort of legal or military intervention? It's just so dumb to say things like that. What I hear from people who are still in Venezuela and still protesting and, and committed to staying there is they feel like there's nothing that they can do at this point because they tried protesting to get international attention and they think that Venezuela just isn't geopolitically important enough to get any countries to take a huge step and really make it their focus. And even if they did, I mean, oil sanctions, the other thing you mentioned, could have a huge humanitarian impact. It would be like turning out the lights in Venezuela. It would be cutting off the only source of revenue. And who knows what that would look like? Yeah. I mean, so I think Venezuela sells us, the United States, 700,000 barrels of oil a day. Do you think that that's one of those measures that would just be so draconian that it would hurt the people more than the government? I mean, is there, is there any leverage there? I mean, the thing about the U.S. and Venezuela is they have this really important commercial connection, even as they spend all day saying how bad the other government is. So the U.S. buys a lot of Venezuelan oil. But what's even more important is that the U.S. is one of the very few customers still paying cash for oil because Venezuela has leveraged most of its oil. So most of it just goes to China to pay back loans or Russia or goes to these allies for services. But the U.S. is still giving Venezuela like cold, hard cash for oil, which it desperately needs. So without that, I mean, the country would have no money. Right. I should note that uh, Maduro is one of only four heads of state to be sanctioned the way you mentioned earlier. The rest of the list is Bashar al-Assad, Kim Jong-un, and Robert Mugabe. So he is in uh, breathing some rarefied creep air. The last thing I want to ask you about is I heard you say in a recent interview that when you were living in Venezuela, it didn't feel like things were changing day to day. You sort of lived your life, you adjusted, you moved on, but then you'd look back a year and think, I can't believe how much more stable things felt then. I bet some people are listening to this in the U.S. and they think back to Trump's inauguration and feel like things were more stable back then. Is there a lesson there for us about 
not being a boiled frog or standing up for the little things? Like, is there any lesson there? Yeah, it's so hard because you don't want to be hysterical. And as a journalist, I think it's especially important to try to stay measured or you just lose credibility. But at the same time, like you say, it's so hard to tell when things are changing. So in 2014, all the journalists would talk about how it was ridiculous to call Venezuela a dictatorship. And we went out of our way in stories to make clear that Maduro had just been elected fairly in a democratic election. And people were kind of saying that all the way up until a couple of months ago. It's just hard to see when things are changing and when you're inside of it. And with the humanitarian crisis, it was almost worse. Like when I got down there, people were going through the garbage at the end of the day sometimes to see if there was anything in there. Um, you know, the way you sometimes see in the U.S., like a person, maybe a person who lives on the street who's just going through a garbage can. And then little by little, you start to see that more. And then you start to see it during all hours of the day. And then I started to see it in my own middle class neighborhood. Like anytime I looked out the window or anytime I put a bag on the street, immediately somebody would be there going through it. And then one day it was like, oh, my God, this country is full of people who are surviving on garbage. But I don't know when that happened, like when that change happened. And I hope we never see anything like the collapse that we've seen in Venezuela in the U.S. But if we do, it'll be very hard to see it coming and to even see it when you're in the middle of it. Sobering. Hannah, thank you so much for talking with me today. I think people need to realize that the collapse of a government in our hemisphere, you know, this close to the United States would just be enormously impactful for the region, for migration, for the United States. So it's something we should all focus on and care about. So thank you for educating all of us. Oh, thank you so much. That's it for Pod Save the World for this week. Thank you guys again for listening. Check out the Pod Save the World Facebook page. It's a place you can post questions or suggest topics that we should cover. You can follow me on Twitter at at TVTOR08. And don't forget to rate us in the iTunes store if you like the show. It means a lot to us and I appreciate it. Bye-bye.